Grateful for you. What a good dude. Well, hey, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Rudy Hartman. I'm on staff here with uh, Salt Company with Doxa Church. We are uh, continuing our series, uh, What is God Like, that we've been working through, just really answering this one question. And um, I got to be honest with you guys, I got a little bit nostalgic this week because a year ago, this Thursday was the first Thursday I ever got to preach at Salt Company here in Madison. So I um, just, I just counted a joy and an honor to get to like have seen what God has been doing here in this house and in, in this ministry. I uh, am just so proud of so many of you that I've gotten to know and see grow. I'm so just respect our leaders. And it made me, it made me think back to like a decade ago, if you could believe that. Of course you can believe that. I'm ancient. Okay, um, I, 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 I was in college myself. And there's just something about these years that you're in that are so formative that you'll wear the marks of for so many years to come. I was thinking about my college pastor, Rahul Agrawal. Um, he was incredible. He was a really great dude, an incredible teacher of the Bible, a better friend and mentor. Um, there's so much that I learned from him about how to love and follow Jesus, how to humbly confess sin, how to take the gospel seriously, but not be arrogant and taking myself too seriously. Uh, he, he was great. Um, uh, Kylie McCracken uh, really worked alongside him. I learned so much organizationally from that woman that I, I've just really been formed by. Um, so many other people was either exhausted or excited by by being around them, but I was deeply formed. And, and it made me think of this old adage that you just hear a lot. And it's, it's this picture of like, you tell me who like your five closest friends are and I'll tell you what your future is. Have you heard that before, right? That, that idea that the people that you follow are the people that you'll be formed by. Uh, the, the, the ones that you follow, the organizations that you follow, the things that you put your time, attention, energy towards are the things that you're going to be formed by because we're formed by what we follow and what we follow will form us. It's caught or it's taught it just even just by being around uh, what, what, what we follow is what will form us. And, and I, I've been thinking about that as we've been looking at this series, What is God Like? Because I really want you guys to get the information uh, as we work through this passage. Right? We, we've been looking at this passage in Exodus 34 where God answers that question for us. Right, We're not just pulling arbitrary attributes of who God is and what he's like. We're just looking at God answering that question for us. What is God like? He's been answering that from Exodus 34, 6 and 7 as we've been slowly going through this. And as, as much as I want you to know the answer to that question, what is he like, I want you to also just consider this, specifically just talking to the men and women in the room who are Christian, that if you claim to follow God, if you claim to follow this God, then you have to understand that you will be formed by what you follow. And if you're not being formed, perhaps you need to actually go back and consider whether you actually are or are not following him. And we're going to get into that a little bit tonight with the piece that we're on this evening. Are we, are we being formed by this God that we're learning about? This week's really going to press us in that. So, so lean in as we're here. We're in verse 7 of Exodus 34. I'm going to give one thought and, and ask a couple questions and answer them around it. Uh, note takers, this is for you. I got you. Here, here's the, the main idea. It's just six words. God's forgiving nature forms forgiving followers. God's forgiving nature forms forgiving followers. That, that's our main idea as we look at this piece of the text, that he's forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. So to that end, we got to ask a couple of questions, right? That, that, that phrase draws us, us in, draws us out. we got to start just at the beginning. What does it mean that God is forgiving? 
Exodus 34, verse 7, maintaining love to thousands in forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. This word forgiving is so interesting because every single person in this room might have a different definition for what forgiving is because it can feel like such an abstract term. It can feel like a term that is really um, formed by our experience of giving or receiving forgiveness, right? For, for something to have to be forgiven, something wrong has to have happened, but for something wrong to have happened and it require forgiveness, usually there requires that there be some relationship in there as well. And, and the, the definition can, can, can look like I did something wrong that brought offense or pain or betrayal to someone and I need to be forgiven of it. And, and it can go on and on and on and look different based on what your definition of it is. But it does pull us into this reality that forgiveness takes place within the realm of relationship. And something that God's been consistent about through the entirety of this breakdown of who he is is that he is a relational God. We've seen from the very beginning that God is relational. Just the way that he uses his name, Yahweh, he's powerful and personal and chooses to make himself knowable in a relational way. And what's so interesting about this text is that it does not say God forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. It says forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Now that might not sound like a very important distinction or differentiation, but please don't let this get lost on you. What we're seeing in this text is that it is not just that God forgives as an activity among others that he sometimes does or chooses to do. It's that his forgivingness is a part of his identity and his nature. As God is answering the question, what is God like? He makes sure to include that in his very nature, he is a forgiving God. That when he introduces himself, one of the first things he says is, I'm forgiving. That's what I'm about. Douglas K. Stewart says it like this, it'll be on the screen. It says that he does not reluctantly forgive sin against himself and others, but he does so eagerly as a manifestation of his character. Last week we talked about God, uh, is that his love is faithful and that his love goes beyond the requirement of duty. In a very real sense, this idea of God being forgiving is a continuation of the love of God. That God in his very nature is forgiving and forgiveness is baked into what God is like because the only type of people that there are for God to be able to love are people who are in need of forgiveness. To which the next logical question would be this. Rudy, forgiveness from what? Well, I'm glad you asked, Megan. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Okay, sorry. The text answers that question with what could really only be described as Bible language. Forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Without going too much into detail, just to break this down, this is like the unholy trinity, wickedness, rebellion, and sin. It was used in the Jewish culture to express and break down the scope and the scale of human brokenness and burden before God. Just to work backwards from this list, sin communicates the idea of missing. It's this idea that would come from um, someone who had a slingshot and a stone in it and would would spin it and release it and would miss the target. That's this idea of sin. To sin is to miss the target that you are aiming at. Metaphorically, sinning is missing the target of the way that God laid out for his people to live. And in their estimation, this was not some burden or this was not some additional extra thing that they had to shove their life into. They saw the way that God laid out for their life to be the most beautiful, most flourishing, best way of life that was available for humanity. But when they missed it, they would miss it morally and it would put a burden on them and their sin. This covers the burden of morality, 
sin, rebellion. Rebellion communicates the idea of visceral resistance, not only to God, but to others. That you not only resist, but you turn against in a violent way God and those who are around you in a way that brings the burden of broken trust into the relationship. So there's moral burden that comes from sin. There's broken trust that comes from rebellion. And then, and then this word wickedness sounds like kind of heavy. There's literally a musical named Wicked, right? It's like, it's like, it's like this, this is kind of not really a word that we use typically. I don't know how many times today you describe something as wicked. We're not in Britain, right? Like it's not like a thing that we do. Um, someone got is cultured. Okay, um, no. Uh, this is really interesting. The word in the original language for wickedness is havan. And avon is like a junk drawer word in, in um, the Jewish language. It's like how we would say like everything good is awesome. They would say everything bad is havan. It comes from this idea of something that was straight or, or level becoming crooked. It, it, it could be anything from a white lie to grave injustice. This word covered the totality of all crooked, all broken, all messed up things and their consequences. This is the burden of crooked paths and the consequences that come from our sin. The word havan is actually related to the Hebrew word that means to punish. This is really interesting. I know this is kind of nerd bars a little bit, but like if you hold on, we're gonna, we're gonna go somewhere with it. Havan would often be paired with the Hebrew word to punish. And it, the idea is that if you did something that was havan, if you did something that was, if you did something that fell into this junk drawer word for sin or something that's wrong, then your punishment was the visitation of that havan on you. It's as if to say the consequence of the sin was the punishment of that sin for you. It's this idea, this interesting idea of God's punishment when paired with wickedness, rebellion, and sin has much less to do in like the context of, of this text and this idea with active intervention and way more to do with God actually stepping back when something happens or when we choose to do something. And allowing Havan to play out to its natural end. Allowing sin to play out to its natural end. For God to punish would be for him to actually simply step back. And allow the wickedness, rebellion, and sinful acts that people choose to play themselves out in our lives now and in eternity. Think of it like this. It's like you're swimming in an ocean. And you make a decision to tie a rock around your ankle. And then to tie another rock around your ankle and another rock and another rock and another rock. It's this very concrete idea of sin being a burden. We think of sin in the abstract. They thought of sin in the concrete. Sin is a burden that we put on ourselves through our choices and our action. We add burden and we add burden and we add burden until we can't stay afloat anymore and we sink. The question we have to consider is this. Was someone dragging us down when we began to sink? No. It was the rocks that we tied around our ankles. We did something that added greater and greater burden to the point at which we couldn't swim anymore. And the natural trajectory of tying rocks to your feet when you're swimming in the middle of the ocean is that you sink. This is the image given of sin. That sin is a weight and sin is a burden. And it's a really different way of looking at sin and looking at God than is often presented in culture. Often we think about sin in a really abstract sense. Like it's this arbitrary thing I did wrong. And God's going to come in and smack me around and punish me for whatever I did. And where the language here that's used is that sin is a weight and a burden that I choose to pick up and put on myself. And the punishment of God is to allow me to have the agency and dignity of experiencing the consequence of my choices. 
If you put too much weight on a bone, you'll break it. And my brokenness due to sin only grows as the burden of sin increases and I continue carrying it and never bring it to God. In life, it brings, leads to consequences and in eternity, the natural end of that is separation with God for forever. I just want to let that sit for a moment because I wonder if you've ever like, just felt that. Like Christian or not, where you've done something and what you feel after that is just this soul-crushing weight of what you've done. Or you feel the soul-crushing weight of trying to hide the thing that you've done from other people. What if they find out? What if they see? What if they actually come to know? What if they always see me like this forever? We live in terror. It's a weight. It's a burden. It's still a piece of sin. What we need when we understand that our sin is a burden is for someone to carry the burden of our iniquity, our rebellion, and our sin. What we need is to be forgiven. And that's why this word that's used here for forgiveness is absolutely incredible. This has been messing with me the entire week, guys. I have been looking forward to this moment. Um, <laughs> the word here for forgiveness that's used is nasa. Nasa means to carry, to lift up, and to take away. That's what God's forgiveness is. It, that, that sin is a burden that is placed on us through our activity and through our action. And forgiving is Nasa that he carries, he lifts it up, and he takes away. God's forgiveness is his natural desire to carry us, to lift up from us, to take away from us the burden of sin that we cannot carry, we cannot lift up, and we cannot take away on our own. God's forgiveness is his active involvement and disruption of the natural progression of our sin. As we come to him and we cry out for him to forgive us, he interrupts the progression that our sin had us on. He dives into the ocean and chops off the ropes that had the rocks on them that were dragging us down. And he lifts up us up where we were sinking before. He takes the weight off of our backs and he saves us from what was crushing our soul. He saves us from the burden of our sin that has consequences now and in eternity. He, he saves us into an eternity that is not separated from him, but rather is with him forever. That's this picture of hell as a natural progression of a life marked by choosing sin and not coming to God. And forgiveness is the disruptive work of God to save us now and in eternity from the progressive brokenness of sin. By being forgiving, God is saying, I will lift the weight of sin off the shoulders of all sinners. And when God carries, lifts up, and takes away our sin, friend, we don't have to carry it anymore. This is the concrete picture of our sin and what God does with it. He takes the burden and weight of our sin off of those who come to him. That's what God's like. This is what God does. This is in his nature. He's willing and able and eager to forgive all who come to him. That those who choose to deny him invite brokenness and burden on themselves, but those who come to him, he will forgive and lift the burden of sin off of now and for forever. That's what it means for him to be forgiving, but it leads us to our second question, which is, who does this God forgive? And the answer is simply this. He is willing and able to forgive all of those who come to him through the finished and forgiving work of Jesus Christ. I love this from Isaiah chapter 53. This is a prophecy that is looking towards Christ that men and women in the Old Testament would trust in as they were hoping in the Messiah, Savior that was going to come. Look at verse 4 here. Surely he took up, that word is Nassah, 
our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. Christ was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. It's talking about the work of Jesus, taking our pain from us on his shoulders, bearing our suffering on his shoulders, taking our separation and sin from us and putting it on himself. In the original language, the start of this stanza reads, surely he nasad our pain. He forgave our pain. He carried our pain. He lifted up our pain. He took away our pain and our sin and our separation for God. He forgives. Why? Because he is forgiving. Because it's just who he is. He, he's doing what is natural to him. We see it come up again. Check this out right next to it. In 1 Peter 2.24, which is actually the vision verse of the church that we just planted in Ann Arbor, tree line. Where it says he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. We see these parallels. He took up, he bore, he took it from us, carried it on himself. And as a result of what he does in taking that burden from us, he takes the wound of sin and we get the healing. He, he takes the pain of sin and we get the relief. He takes the brokenness of sin and we get the wholeness. He takes the punishment of sin and we get forgiveness and life so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. He bore our sin. He carried them in his body on the cross. Whenever you read the Bible and you see this language of Christ bearing a burden of us, you need to understand that's talking about the forgiving work of Jesus Christ, which is to literally take the weight and burden of our sin off of our shoulders and put it onto himself. Not just some of it, not just uh, for a little while, but all of it for all time, past, present, and future, taken on himself. It's the burden that Christ took from us on the, the cross that he bore for you and me on the cross so that we might die to sin not have to bear our sin, not have to carry our sin anymore and live in righteousness, right relationship with God. Sin is a burden that has been taken from us in Christ. It is a wound that is healed in our body and taken on Christ. He took what our sin deserved from him on the cross and so, died so that, hear this, anyone who comes to God through Christ would be fully forgiven. That the burden of your sin and mine is taken away. The weight is removed. We are literally saved from the crushing burden of our sin that we could not carry or hold. We're forgiven and free. Recipients of salvation for our sin made a part of the family of God. So who can be forgiven? Anybody. Anyone who comes to God by bringing their sin to Christ and asking him to forgive them and to save them from their sin. He forgives through this finished work of the cross and the empty tomb because in his nature he is forgiving. He's not withholding. He's not stingy. You don't have to like perform for him or pray some magic, incantational, traditionalistic, religious prayer to impress him. You don't have to pretend that you're more sacred or holy than other people so that you catch his attention. Because God isn't withholding anything from you in Christ at all already. He's forgiving. Is his nature not enough? Is his son on the cross not enough? Like his nature is forgiving and his desire is to forgive you. He's already done what's necessary on the cross for you and for anyone to come to him and to ask to be forgiven and for him to save anyone anyone like for real anyone can come to God and be forgiven and if we're honest that can make people sometimes a little bit uncomfortable 
we're cool with that sometimes. And then other times you get around people and you're like, them? Or you do something and you're like, really? Me? We're cool with it till it makes us uncomfortable. You know who learned this lesson I think really well? That God forgives anyone who comes to him and absolutely hated it. <laughs> There's a guy named Jonah. This dude named Jonah in the Bible. Maybe you know his story or like the VeggieTale version of it. Um, <laughs> chapter 1 and 2 of Jonah, God asks Jonah to go to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. Now Assyria had stomped the kingdom of Israel. Israel is exiled in ruins and Assyria is a part of that tragic history of Israel. Jonah hears God say, go to Nineveh. And he says, nope. Um, and he runs from God and literally goes to Tarshish, which is the furthest area on the map that he could possibly get away from. A storm comes as he's sailing and Jonah realizes that it's a part of God intervening to keep him from continuing in the path of Jonah's sin to run from God. So Jonah jumps in the water, swallowed by a large fish and vomited out after a prayer meeting and three days uh, later on the shores of Nineveh. Deep breath. <laughs> a lot happens. God speaks to Jonah again and says, go to Nineveh. Up to speed, chapter three. Here's what's wild. Jonah goes through the city and has like the worst gospel presentation ever. Four more days, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Like imagine if I got up this evening and I was like, what's up guys, welcome to Salt Company. 40 more days and Madison will be overthrown. Like that would be ridiculous. Sorry, that would be ridiculous. Like that would actually be like a dumb thing. And you just sit there and you're like, what? What? Like, like this is Jonah's message that he brings. It's like the most half-hearted thing ever. And the entire city of Nineveh repents, fasts, and prays, turns to God and asks him for forgiveness, and God accepts them. Revival comes to Nineveh. What they're doing in their sin is leading to destruction. God sends a messenger to offer them a way out. They ask for forgiveness, and God actively intervenes and forgives this people. Why? Because he's a forgiving God. <laughs> And anyone who comes to him will be forgiven. And then chapter 4 of Jonah starts. How do we think Jonah's doing? Homie was used by God to start a revival in the city of an enemy nation. Jonah 4 verse 1 on the screen. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. Sick. <laughs> Jonah's angry at what God has done. Why? Verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Those verses sound a little bit familiar to what we've been walking through for the last few weeks. Jonah literally says, I knew what you were like because I read Exodus 34. I remember that. I've, it's been passed down through the oral tradition. I, I knew that you'd forgive them. Jonah quotes the passage we've been working through in frustration because he doesn't want forgiveness to come to Nineveh. He wanted justice and judgment to come to Nineveh. That's why he ran. He said, if I don't go, if I don't tell them about the forgiving, redemptive God, then they'll keep going in their sin. It will cause suffering now and in eternity for them. You've got to go back and read Jonah 1. Jonah's not scared. He's running away, but he's running from Nineveh. He's running from Nineveh, not because he's worried about what's going to necessarily happen to him there, although something might happen. He's running away because he doesn't want them to be forgiven by this forgiving God. He wants them to know justice and judgment, not forgiveness. But God has forgiven because he forgives anyone who comes to him. Jonah's angry. 
Verse three shows us how angry he is. Therefore, O God, please take my life from me for it is better for me to live, to die than to live. Um, If you've ever had anyone harm themselves or you've harmed yourself or have had suicidal ideation, this is a very infuriating verse to read because nothing really bad has happened to Jonah. In fact, something really good has happened and Jonah has a really immature anger here that is actually exposing his own immaturities and insecurities. His anger has completely dominated him, which is why it's wild when God's response is this, verse four. The Lord said, do you do well to be angry? (laughs) I just think it's wild. God's like, is it right for you to be angry? Like, yeah, you did know I was gonna do this. You quoted the literal verses where I said that I was going to do this. Is it right for you, Jonah, to be angry because I am who I said that I am? God's forgiving nature forms forgiving followers or at least it's supposed to. God's forgiving nature forms forgiving followers at least That's what it's supposed to do for people who follow after him. And what we see in Jonah is what's so easy to see sometimes in ourselves, that we want forgiveness for us, but we often want justice for others. We want relief and mercy and grace for us, and we want judgment for others, justice for others. Maybe that reveals a little bit about how much we're following God. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells a story that kind of feels like this. Uh, I'll tell it quickly. This man has a debt. It's a burden of 10,000 talents, which is kind of like saying a bajillion dollars or like $12 billion. It's like an unreal number. And And he comes to the person that he owes this debt to and he begs him to forgive this debt. And shockingly, the man is forgiven of $12 billion, right? And then the forgiven man walks outside, runs into someone who owes him significantly less money, seems to forget exactly what has just happened to him and beats that man in the street until he gets his money from him. He'd been forgiven and then he forgot. Here's how that story ends, Matthew 18, 31 through 35 on the screen. When his fellow servants saw all that had taken place, they were greatly distressed And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And his master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him from the jailers, to the jailers. The actually the original language there says to the torturers until he should pay all his debt. So also, now this is Jesus talking so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you don't forgive your brother and sister from your heart. Whoa, Jesus. You better run that back one more time for me. Two things really clear from this story as Jesus tells it. First, God clearly takes forgiveness very, very seriously. I mean, those are Jesus' words at the, in verse 35. If we aren't being forgiving towards one another, how can we claim to be following the God who is by his very nature forgiving? Could we misrepresent God? And if we misrepresent God, perhaps do we even know him at all? It's the first thing. The second thing is this. It's clear that the man in this story doesn't forgive as he's been forgiven. We see that. And the question that we, the reader or the hearer, are supposed to be left with is this. Do we Does God's forgiving nature form us into forgiving followers? 
do we forgive in the same way that we've been forgiven? This is a massive issue in scripture because it's so close to the heart of God. So just so we're clear, it's everywhere. I don't do this often, but I'm gonna read a lot of scripture in a very short amount of time. It's on the screen. Matthew 6, 14 through 15. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly father forgive you. Mark 11, and whatever you stand praying, forgive. And if you have anything against anyone so that your father who is in heaven may forgive you of your trespasses. Luke 6, 47, judge not, you'll not be judged. Condemn not, you'll not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Christ in, as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians 3, 12 through 13, put on then as Christ's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving one another. As the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. Salt, look at how close this is to the heart of God. Is it close to us who claim to follow Jesus? It seems that if we get it, then we pass it on. But if we don't get it, then we need to reevaluate if we understand what's happening when God says he forgives us. God's forgiving nature forms forgiving followers. So how does his forgiveness do this? I wanna offer you just three ways and then I'm gonna take my seat. Number one, forgiven people are freed people. If we forget how we've been forgiven, then we will never forgive people the same way. If we have this sense in our mind that we have to do the work to free ourselves from our sin to come to God, then we will always put the burden on other people to try to earn their, our forgiveness from us. If we think that God's holding out on us and is making us work just a little bit harder to actually be free from our sin, then every time that we're offering forgiveness to someone else, we're going to put the pressure on them and say, you've got to earn this just like I had to. But if we remember that God has carried, lifted up, and taken away the burden of our sin from us, then we'll remember the freedom that comes from having that burden removed. We will live in that freedom and remember that freedom even in the midst of our present acts of sin. Even in the moments after we sin, coming back to Jesus and remembering that my sin, all of it, even the thing I just did, has been forgiven and lifted up. I don't bear that burden Christ has and Christ does. Now, if that feels like freedom to sin more, then we don't understand the forgiveness of God. But when we understand that he takes and carries and bore our sin in his body on the cross, it doesn't give us freedom to sin more. It gives us power to sin less. When we remember the forgiveness that we've been given, the cost that Christ paid for our sin to be forgiven, we begin to experience more and more freedom from sin. We experience the freedom of having that burden lifted and that weight removed. Why on earth would we choose to run to what adds weight to our lives? Why would we run back to what brings burden and brokenness and pain where we once knew shame from sin? When we start to experience freedom from sin, we remember and live our lives in our forgiveness of sin that Christ has given to us. There is a freedom, there's a lightness that comes as he reaches down and lifts that sin off of your shoulders and says, you are forgiven now and for forever. Forgiven people are free people. Number two, forgiven people Forgive people. When everything in you wants to point the finger at someone, 
hold a grudge against them. Remember and rehearse the pain that they caused you and be bitter towards them. Forgiveness frees us to lay that offense aside. Now, don't be fooled here. Some people have said that forgiveness is weakness and nothing could be further from the truth. The act of carrying someone's sin against you, rebellion against you, betrayal against you, brokenness against you to Jesus, instead of heaping more weight onto that person takes incredible strength. Unforgiveness, however, is in many cases the pinnacle of simplicity. We can just be angry. We can just be resentful. We can just be bitter. And now I say this, I'm gonna pause here because statistically some of you in the room have been harmed and abused either physically, emotionally, or sexually. So I don't wanna rush past this with simple sound bites and leave the hurting on the side of the road. Uh, for you, if that's you, forgiveness is a crucial part of healing and requires, frankly, in my, in my opinion, a move of God and a grace from God. And I'm gonna come back to that in a second. But for so many of us, we're just so wrapped up in ourselves as the main character of everyone else's story, so sure that we're right all the time, so afraid of any kind of reconciliatory conflict that we just tolerate unforgiveness in ourselves. And the problem is that when we tolerate unforgiveness in ourselves, it makes us intolerable towards others. Unforgiveness has a tendency to show itself through three faces, anger, resentment, and bitterness. Anger comes through internal or external outbursts towards others, towards God, and towards yourself. If our sin was like the Diet Coke bottle, our unforgiveness is the pack of Mentos that's just shoved into it. No matter how tight you put on the cap, at some point, either the bottle's gonna crack or that, pops, that, 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 that cap is gonna shoot off and it's gonna get all over everybody around you. That's what anger does. It gets your internal frustration and unforgiveness on the people who are around you. Anger, resentment. Resentment is quieter, but perhaps more deadly to yourself and to others. Where anger happens and someone's likely going to say something to you about you being angry in that moment, resentment can be death by a thousand cuts over a number of years. Something happened, someone offended you. They might not even know that they did that, but you treat them with a quiet resentment. You act like you didn't hear them when they said something in the group. It's the cold shoulder in the lobby or on campus. It's the offensive joke while you're roasting each other, which is already a bad idea. It just has a bit too much weight behind it. That comment that, that's just got a bit too much force, a little bit too much cut, and you can laugh it off. Oh, ha, ha, thought we were just messing around, but you're warm inside because you know you meant what you said. Unforgiveness and anger and treating people with resentment and in bitterness. I once heard someone say that bitterness is the only poison that you drink expecting someone else to die. Where anger and resentment might get caught, bitterness boils underneath the surface. The only person suffering is you and everyone around you because you haven't been yourself for a while or eventually it comes out and comes up. This is brutal when someone who you thought, thought you guys were good friends finds out that you've been bitter at them for days, for weeks, and for months, and for years. And they wonder why you didn't just say anything and then bitterness begets bitterness. Hurt begets hurt. Unforgiveness begets unforgiveness. Contrary to popular opinion, time does not heal all wounds. Often time actually causes wounds that are unattended to, fester and get infected and grow worse. Anger and resentment and bitterness don't just go away. They have to be dealt with. The faces of unforgiveness that are killing you, your relationship with others and your relationship with God, they have to be dealt with. So who's gonna forgive first? 
You see, when we forgive, we remember that we were the ones that deserved resentment and bitterness and anger from God. That I was not just from, from, not just from other people but around me, but, but from God himself. Forgiveness can be brutal and it can also be beautiful as you give to others what you've received from Jesus. We love receiving forgiveness, but when we offer it, when we give it, we feel the cost of it. And that cost of forgiveness will bring us right back to Jesus as we understand in a new way, perhaps at first in a painful way, the weight of the forgiveness that we've received from him. As we talk about forgiveness, especially forgiving others, there are some things that we need to be clear on, though. A quick framework here for forgiveness, especially for those of you who have been in dangerous and abusive situations. As it relates to this advice, I think there's really good stuff that's out there, and I think there's some really bad stuff that's out there. So I want to pull over for a moment and dispel five quick myths of forgiveness. Myth number one, I need to return into the relationship or the context after I have forgiven that person. And the reality is that forgiveness does not necessitate you returning to or staying in an abusive environment or relationship. To forgive means to let go. You can forgive and still leave. Myth number two, even if someone's apology seems empty, I have to receive it and return. Again, forgiveness does not mean you have to accept empty apologies as true transformation. You may need space and you may need to take time to observe that person in that place to see if their harm or their abusive tendencies have actually transformed and changed. There's no requirement, please hear this, for us to forgive and forget. You can't forgive and hold a grudge, but you don't have to forgive and forget and return to a place that is harmful. Myth number three, forgiveness means I never need to talk about this with anyone. The reality is that you don't have to stay silent. Now again, don't forgive and be, you can't forgive and be a gossip, but, but you don't have to stay silent, especially in dangerous contexts and contexts of abuse. This cascades into point four, forgiveness means I need to avoid justice. You need to hear this, forgiveness does not mean that justice should be withheld. You can forgive someone and the authorities of the state of Wisconsin may need to step in and be called in to render justice and protect other people that that person might harm. Just want you to know that if that's you and you've been abused or harmed or in danger, you can simultaneously forgive and seek justice. Myth number five, forgiveness means I have to act like I'm not suffering. And that is so far from being true. Forgiveness does not mean that you are not still suffering the consequence from the decisions of someone else. It does not mean embody a victim mentality, but forgiveness is a step in the stage and process of healing, but it does not necessitate that you stuff and hide your suffering. No, forgiveness, forgiveness is being aware of what someone has done and choosing to forgive them anyways. Forgiveness is choosing to keep no record of wrong and refusing to resent or punish someone slowly for what they have done. Forgiveness takes mercy and grace. Forgiveness is a releasing of bitterness and anger. You look at someone who's carrying a burden and you forgive them, taking it from them, bringing it to Jesus, rather than adding the weight of your unforgiveness, anger, resentment, and bitterness to the weight they're already experiencing for their sin. Forgiving others is always going to bring you back to the gospel. It's going to require a dependence on the God who is forgiving and him forming you into a more forgiving person. And as you remember your forgiveness, you, a person who's been forgiven, will grow in forgiving people. When you get forgiveness, you'll pass it on. Number three, forgiven people are sent people. When you see someone who has not experienced the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, it is entirely possible that the mercy of God towards that person in their moment of choosing to sin and choosing to not come to him might be you coming to them with the gospel of forgiveness. The goodness of God is not a storm on the sea for that person, but it's you sitting next to them in class. 
It's you having the good news of a God who is forgiving and loving and patient and compassionate and merciful and noble and personal and powerful being right there with you next to them. If you've been forgiven by Jesus, then you are sent with the gospel to offer the forgiveness that you've received from God to others. I wonder what God could do through a group of people who experience and remember that forgiveness regularly. We are a free, forgiving, and sent people. What kind of community he could make us into, how he could use this room to impact the campus. I think it would be disruptive, just like God's forgiveness is in our own lives. God's forgiving nature forms forgiving followers. So how will God use you? should just take a moment to close your eyes and bow your heads. There's, there's this thought that I've had, even as I've been thinking about some of the last words of Jesus in my, my just own time with him, even this morning. Um, some of the last words Jesus says to people who mocked him, unjustly accused him, beat him, blasphemed him and crucified him, all by the way, while Christ stayed silent. Some of his last words were a prayer where Jesus said, forgive them, Father, because they don't know what they're doing. Some of Jesus' last words are forgive them to the people who are hanging him on a cross. Why? Why? It's the same thing we've been coming back to. The why is because it's in his nature. That'd be enough, but I started thinking about the story of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, the first martyr in the history of the Christian church after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And at the end of his life, before they kill him by throwing stones at his defenseless head, Stephen falls to his knees and says in Acts 7 verse 60, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Don't hold it against them, God. Carry it from them. Forgive them. In Jesus, we see God's forgiving nature. In Stephen, we see a formed forgiving follower because God's forgiving nature forms forgiving followers. My hope is that God would do that in us as we respond this evening. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, I need you to know that forgiveness is available to you tonight. You can quit living under your burden. You can quit trying to manage it you can quit trying to show up looking right, look at whatever it is. You can quit trying to doggy paddle your way through life with rocks tied around your ankles. No, Jesus is inviting you to experience the freedom of his forgiveness tonight. You only need to come to him and say, Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Save me from my sin. Carry my sin. Remove my sin. Rescue me from my sin. And he'll do it. You don't have to wait carry it and take it from you tonight. If you're a Christian, perhaps there's a burden of unforgiveness in your life, an, an anger, someone you feel resentment towards, bitterness towards, someone who God has carried their sin and taken it from them, and but you are pushing the weight back on their shoulders. And I wonder if God might be inviting some of us who've been struggling with unforgiveness to be free tonight. Some of us who have struggled for so long to be forgiving as Christ himself is forgiving to be free tonight. To even awaken us to relationships we need to reconcile. 
to help us see the beauty of the forgiveness that we've received, the freedom that comes from that forgiveness and to send us with it so that other people might come to know that same forgiveness. So however you need to respond tonight, we're gonna give you just a moment here to pray. Whatever you need, just take the risk and ask. Listen and respond. Jesus, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you that you got on a cross and you bore my sin in your body. Thank you for the freedom that you've given to everyone who asks you for forgiveness. That the wounds of our sin are healed. The separation of our sin is, 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 is bridged. That we are now in a relationship with you as we put our trust in you and come to you for forgiveness. God, I pray that you would set people free tonight, that you would help people to understand they don't have to carry the burden of their sin because you've forgiven it of them. You've carried it for them. You've taken it from the people in this room. I pray that you would give a lightness to the Christians in this room. But God, Father, I pray that you would draw men and women who don't know you, who have not put their trust in you tonight to yourself to come and know the freedom of the forgiveness that you offer. God, make us a forgiving people. Would you do it? And even now, would we just sing in response to the forgiveness that we've received from you? Would our worship be the equivalent to the freedom that you've given us? Would it match what you've provided for us in Christ? Would it match the freedom and the forgiveness that you've given us in Christ? So would we just sing? God, and as we sing, would it just be pleasing to you? as we remember our forgiveness and worship you for what you've done. It's in your name, Jesus, that I pray. Amen. Y'all can go ahead and stand to your, to your feet.